Well, good morning. Before we start our time of worship in God's Word, let us uh, go to the Lord in prayer as we pray for uh, Waco Family Baptist Church in Woodway, Texas, where uh, Pastor Richard Barcelos is preaching today. Uh, the elder there is Todd Gill, and also as we pray for all the churches of the valley. Let us go to our Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you for this time of prayer. We thank you that we can come to you in a singular voice corporately and make our requests known to you. This morning we remember and we lift up in prayer Waco Family Baptist Church, all those who gather in your name there this morning. We pray for Pastor Todd Gill as he leads that congregation in the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Lord, we do pray that you would give him grace to shepherd your people, to instruct them, to comfort them, to guide them, to teach them, to correct them if necessary, to shepherd them. We pray for Pastor Richard Barcelos, who is preaching there this morning. May your word go forth from his lips in power and in truth to the saving of souls and to the nourishment of those who believe. Lord, we, th- we pray the same thing for the churches that gather around us this morning. Lord, we recognize on this particular Lord's Day there are many weak brothers and sisters in Christ who forsake the gathering, who find themselves gathered this morning because of the empty tomb of your Son, Jesus Christ. We also recognize, Lord, there are many who are not yet in Christ, who have been drawn to churches who hear the gospel, Lord, may it bring life from the dead. And Lord, if it be your will, may these things be done this morning here among us as we worship you in spirit and in truth, as we anticipate the preaching of your word and what you will do by and through your Holy Spirit. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. And we all say, Amen. Well, please open your Bibles to the book of Jude. The last time I was preaching here to you, I was finishing the epistle of 1 John to the congregation in Santa Clarita. And actually, before I continue, greetings and love from all of your brothers and sisters in Santa Clarita. We are praying for you there. Uh, on a regular basis, and I am sure Pastor Perkins is remembering us even now in prayer as we are here this morning. But as I was preaching to you last, I was in First John, and since by the uh, will of our Father, I have finished First John and have begun preaching out of Jude to the saints in Santa Clarita. It's been very profitable, and so what I decided to preach to you after discussing with Pastor Barcelos was two messages out of Jude. The first message is really an introduction to the book, and the second sermon will be more of an in-depth study as we continue to see what Jude would have us learn through the Holy Spirit. When I told Pastor Barcelos that I was going to be preaching out of Jude, he said, great. Um, I said, interestingly enough, the first message is on family and parenting. He says, oh, we don't do that. 
<laughs> and I said, Mar- Mario said, we just want you to bring us the word, brother. I said, certainly. <laughs> and this is what we're going to have today. The word of God with the application, I think, of family and parenting, which you might find strange from Jude, especially the first two verses. And so was I when I began to study this book, but I think that you'll be blessed by it this morning, and I know our congregation has been. And there's application to be made here to all of us, whether parents or not. Uh, We are all children of mothers and fathers, and the Lord, I believe, will bless this message to the betterment of our souls and to the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at Jude 1 and 2. If you're keeping notes, it's going to be in three headings. Heading 1A, encouragement to parents. Heading number 2 is encouragement to children. And heading number 3 will be encouragement to parents and to children. So with that in mind, let us turn to the book of Jude. If you haven't found it, it's the book right before the book of Revelation, the second to last book in your Bible, the penultimate book, a small book, an often forgotten book. But read with me, starting in Jude, verse 1, as we read through verse 2, and then go to the Lord in prayer. Read with me. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, And kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask your help now as we consider the book of Jude. As we consider the first two verses in this epistle. By this beloved saint who is now resting with you in heaven. Lord, we ask that you help us now to understand your word and to apply it to our lives, all for your glory and the good of your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin the sermon with uh, two stories that I think will be a springboard into this sermon. The first has to do with a movie you may have seen or heard of called The Da Vinci Code. Now right here you might be wondering why in the world am I going to be talking about The Da Vinci Code. It was released in theaters in 2006. The Da Vinci Code was advertised as an American mystery thriller film. The film's mystery concerned our Lord Jesus Christ, the church, and the truth claims of Christianity itself. And make no mistake... This film was no friend to Christianity. The movie argued that the grail or the cup that was used by our Lord at the Last Supper, pictured in Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting of the Last Supper, was just symbolic code of a deeper truth concealed by the painter, that the grail was not a cup at all, but rather Mary Magdalene. The film goes on to make the outrageous claim that our Lord had a family and that his bloodline is in existence even to today. It was a blockbuster smash, and the day after, pastors all around the world had to answer and give an account for the faith that is in us. Indeed, many still believe such nonsense like this today. Without a shred of historical or biblical evidence, and in the face of being thoroughly and completely debunked by believers and unbelievers alike, by the way. 
Well, besides warning you and our children about the erroneous and dangerous theology of Hollywood, and even though there is a connection to be made for sure concerning our responsibility, better yet, our command to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints, and even though this is, I believe, a good example of the type of Gnostic or secret knowledge that is often sowed by the evil one within churches today, I think an illustration like this does well to set up the context of what we'll be learning from Jude this morning. That's the first story. The second story I want to share with you is one that has more credibility from someone named Eusebius of Caesarea. He was a church historian, in fact, known as the father of church history. He wrote sometime early in the 4th century. And I want to share something from you from Book 3, Chapter 20, of something entitled, The Relatives of Our Savior. Of the family of the Lord, there were still living the grandchildren of Jude, who is said to have been the Lord's brother according to the flesh. Information was given that they belonged to the family of David, and they were brought to the emperor Domitian by the Evocatius. For Domitian feared for the coming of Christ, as Herod also had feared it. And he asked them if they were descendants of David, and they confessed that they were. Then he asked them how much property they had or how much money they owed, and both of them answered that they had only 9,000 denarii, half of which belonged to each of them. And this property did not consist of silver, but a piece of land which contained only 39 acres and from which they raised their taxes and supported themselves by their own labor. Now when they showed their hands, exhibiting the hardness of their bodies and the callousness produced upon their hands by continuous toil, as evidenced by their own labor, and when they were asked concerning Christ and his kingdom of what sort it was and where and when it was to appear, they answered that it was not a temporal nor an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly and angelic one, which would appear at the end of the world, when he should come in glory to judge the quick and the dead, sounds like the Apostles' Creed, and to give unto everyone according to his works. Upon hearing this, Domitian did not pass judgment against them, but despising them as of no account, he let them go, and by a decree put a stop to the persecution of the church. Now, brothers and sisters, we know that the history of the Da Vinci Code is made up. And sometimes true history may sound made up, but be true. As one author has said, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. But nevertheless, the scriptures remain the sole infallible rule of our faith. Even as it concerns our inquiries into the true bloodline of our Savior according to his human nature. And what's more, I believe the scripture this morning will give us something more. Something that may seem strange. Encouragement for families and parenting. So now as we turn our attention to this book of Jude, I want to do my best to have this not be like an academic lecture when giving an introduction to a biblical book that's easy to do. So I want to just give us some brief details that I think will help us as we continue in these first two verses and will help us in the next two in our second sermon. So this is a brief introduction to the letter of Jude. 
The letter or epistle of Jude is the penultimate book of the New Testament, like I mentioned, second to the last book of our Bibles. Jude is known as one of the seven general epistles because they are written to an undisclosed general audience and they lack a specific identified recipient. You may be wondering what the other general epistles are. Well, think about the letters who aren't addressed to a specific group. James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, and Jude makes seven. But there is more of a rabbit trail than just thinking about who the recipient of each general epistle was. It extends even to who the author is. In one of the uh, popular commentaries uh, called the Ancient Christian Commentary Series, Gerald Bray says this, Who wrote the Catholic epistles or the general epistles? This apparently simple question conceals one of the most long-standing controversies in the history of New Testament interpretation. Again, Eusebius of Caesarea, who we heard from, writes this, Disputed books, which are nevertheless familiar to most, include the epistles known as James, Jude, 2 Peter, and those called 2 John and 3 John, the work either of the evangelist or someone else with the same name. So who is the Jude that wrote Jude? There are at least eight known Judes within the New Testament witness. Did you know that? The name Jude is the more familiarly known as Judas. In the Greek, it's Eudas, translated in Scripture as Judah or Judas or Jude. Now this is the name of several Israelites, also one of the 12 tribes of Israel, Also the name given to the southern kingdom, for those of us who know our Old Testaments. Judah is a translation of the Hebrew word, whereas Judas and Jude are derived from the Greek. This root word is also where we get the term Jew and Judaism. Judah was not only a very common name, but also a very important one. Do you remember the words of Abraham? As he lie on his deathbed. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Shiloh we know is a moniker of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Abraham is saying that the scepter, the ruling scepter, shall not depart from Judah. Until Jesus comes, the Messiah. Indeed, this promised one from the tribe of Judah is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. All the way back in Genesis, our Savior is prophesied. Remember the Apostle John in the book of Revelation when he wept because no one was worthy to open the scroll. And he was told, Stop weeping! For behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Amen. But in the context of the epistle of Jude before us, who are we to identify as Judah or as Judas? Well, I would contend It is not the Jude of Luke 6.16. Luke 16 
is the choosing of the 12 apostles. And we have a Judah there. Judas, the son of James. And another Judah, Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So we have two Judas in the line of the apostles. And I argue it's not either of them. Again, this same Judah shows up in John 14, 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? A very good question, but not from the Judah, I believe, who wrote this book. Acts 1, 13 through 14, he shows up again. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas, Judah the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. I don't believe this is the Jude that wrote this epistle. But this is the Jude, I believe, that wrote the epistle. In Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 54, Jesus came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, those who heard our Lord teach, where did this man get this wisdom? And these miraculous powers, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, and Joseph, and Simon, and Judas. And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? This, I contend, is the Jude that wrote this letter. The sibling of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his humanity. We'll be talking more about this Judas and what the New Testament tells us about him as we continue our message. So if this is the Jude who wrote the letter, when was it written? There are no explicit time markers, only implicit ones in this short epistle. The identification of Jude influences our reasoning. Once we identify who this Jude is, it influences our reasoning on when this book was written. If we are correct that Jude was one of the younger sons of Joseph and Mary, then this leads us to conclude the authoring of this epistle sometime around the third quarter of the first century. Now the second implicit and internal evidence we must work with is accounting for Jude's similarity to 2 Peter. As I'm teaching those in Santa Clarita this epistle, we're constantly going back to 2 Peter because it has such close parallels to the book of Jude. And questions arise, such close parallels and almost exact wording. Does it argue that Peter was using Jude? Or was Jude using Peter when he wrote his epistle? I think Jude was using Peter, actually. But either way, placing the writing of Jude in the mid-60s not only corresponds to our conclusions of Jude being a younger son of Mary and Joseph, but also corresponds with the time frame of Peter's writings. So if that's the author, and that's the 
Uh, the date of the book. What about the recipients? Again, we said this is a general epistle. It's a Catholic epistle. It doesn't have a disclosed audience. So who is Jude writing to? Even though this is known as a general epistle, because we don't know who this letter was originally addressed to, we do have internal evidence that allows us to draw some conclusions. And I believe it's this. The recipients, we know, were well-versed in their Old Testament. Why do I say that? Because when you read this epistle of Jude, you recognize certain things. Number one, Jude talks about explicit Jewish references that a Jew would be intimately aware of, such as the Exodus, Sodom and Gomorrah, Cain, Balaam, Korah. But further than that, they are seemingly acquainted with Jewish literature that was current in the first century, that was not canonical. Books like the Book of Enoch, the Assumption of Moses, the author of Jude will actually allude to these extra-canonical books, which says that his recipients must have had some working knowledge of them. So we have no definitive internal evidence pointing to a location where this epistle originally circulated, but church history records for us that it did travel widely. But why is this book overlooked so often? Why is it neglected? Well, because of the debates about who wrote it, the debates about who it was to, the debates around how short it is, the debates because it includes even citations from non-canonical books like the book of Enoch. So questions about its canonicity was raised in the early church. There were some who held that it was not a canonical book. But the early church as a whole accepted Jude's epistle as canonical. We know this from numerous quotations from first century Christian work, such as the Didache, which is the oldest work we have outside of our New Testaments. The epistle of Barnabas and first Clement and the works of Polycarp. In fact, the Miratorian Canon, written in 175 AD, which is the earliest work we have of a collection of what are canonical books in the New Testament, includes the book of Jude. Furthermore, later church fathers, such as Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian, mentioned the epistle of Jude by naming it and citing it as canonical and accepted by the church. So if that's something of the canonicity... And we know that it is indeed canonical. What is the purpose of this book? Jude mentions early that he intended at first to write a very different letter than he did. But providence and circumstance led him to write, urging believers to contend for the faith. Jude also encourages the church to stand firm against the attacks coming from those who crept into the church, teaching false doctrine, much like the sermons I preached in 1 John. Although most likely written earlier. That is a brief introduction. I hope it is going to be useful as a fertile seedbed for the seeds now that I throw, or that I should say that the Holy Spirit throws through Jude to grow into confidence and endurance and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So now that we're acquainted with this book, we're acquainted with the author and the historical circumstances that surround it, Let us consider the first verse with more of an informed mind. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. 
First, what I want to talk about, what I think Jude is talking about, is his spiritual position. Look what he says. He identifies himself as Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. The term bondservant is the Greek word doulos. Translated servant, bondservant, or as some would argue more appropriately, slave. The definition of the term doulos is something like this. Someone who belongs to another. A bond slave without any ownership rights of their own. One theologian writes this about the term doulos. While it is true that the duties of a slave and servant may overlap to some degree, there is a key distinction between the two, that of being a servant and that of being a slave. Servants are hired hands. Slaves are owned. That's something that I want you to think about as you read, maybe in your translation, where you see bond servant. That I do think actually it would be more appropriately translated slave. Although bond servant is appropriate, if we believe what this theologian is saying, and I think he's right, that one of the major differences between a servant and a slave is one is a hired hand and one is owned. Uh, this will become clear, I think, why Jude is calling himself a doulos of Jesus Christ. Not a hired hand, but a slave. We see this language coming up in 1 Corinthians. I should say this concept coming up by the Apostle Paul, even in 1 Corinthians. When he says to the believers there and to us this morning, Flee immorality! Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Listen, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Does that speak of you? Are you a doulos of Jesus Christ? Have you been bought with a price? Jesus said in John chapter 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. This continual, habitual love of sin is done by slaves of sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The Son remains in the house forever. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Brothers and sisters, how does the Son make you free? By making you a slave of Him. What a peculiar bondage. The Son sets us free by purchasing us from the slave market of sin. You might say like the unbelieving Jews, I'm a slave of no one. I'm free. I am autonomous. I am my own person and the captain of my own ship. But this is not true. Because as Jesus has shown us, everyone is a slave. Everyone. The question is not if you are a slave. The question is what or who are you a slave to? The one who says they are a slave to neither just shows how enslaved they truly are to sin. 
so blinded by it that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. To put it simply, that person is under judgment. And to that person, I say, flee to Christ that you may be saved. Become a slave of the one who will set you free. There is no better master. This, I believe, is what Jude is saying his spiritual position is. This is the spiritual position of Jude. He had become a slave to Christ. Jude, a bond servant, a slave of Christ. But he doesn't just stop with his spiritual position. Now he gives us his physical relation. Jude, a bondservant, a slave of Jesus Christ, and brother of Jesus Christ? He could have said that, but he didn't. And brother of James. Interesting. This is added not merely to explain who he is, but his claim to be heard. It is almost incredible that an apostle should have urged such a claim and yet not have stated the much higher claim of his own office. The inference, again, is that the writer is not an apostle, as some would claim, again, according to the Judah or the Judas that was in the apostolic band. Only one James can be met, meant, James, the brother of our Lord and first bishop of Jerusalem. That is the James whom he is pointing to. Now we read of this being the case even in Galatians chapter 2 verse 9 when Paul, recounting his calling by the Lord, relays that James as well as Peter and John are observed by Paul to be pillars in the church. And so it is that Jude gives us this marker pointing to his brother James, another half-brother of Jesus Christ. So here we have two brothers. We have Jude and we have James. Not the Judas and James in the apostolic band, but the half-brothers of our Lord Jesus Christ according to the flesh. Now, before we get to the application of this, I want you to turn to John chapter 7 if you're able. I think we'll learn something more about both these brothers here. John chapter 7, we have some information that is good to know, which I think will be an encouragement to our souls. Not for what it says, but what understanding it will do to our souls, I believe. John chapter 7, starting in verse 3. His brothers said to him, this is Jesus who they're talking to, and this is Jesus' brothers. His brothers said to him, leave, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5. For not even his own brothers 
were believing in him. That is a very important commentary on Jude and James. Now, for the sake of just engaging our imaginations, consider what it was like growing up in a household with Jesus. Imagine Jesus as your older brother. You're a sinner. Your brothers and sisters are sinners. Your parents are sinners. Your older brother Jesus is not. Imagine Mary and Joseph. They were sinners. Why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? Could that sinful comment have ever slipped out of the mouths of Mary and Joseph? We don't know. To be quite honest, it doesn't matter. But what we do know, given to us in Scripture, is that even his own brothers were not believing in him. And this is when Jesus is 30, at the beginning of his public ministry. For 30 years, they had been living with their brother Jesus and hadn't been believing in him. Truly, Mary and Joseph believed in him. And Mary and Joseph knew the truth of who Jesus was and would have taught that to their brothers, or I'm sorry, to their other children. Pride, animosity, anger, jealousy, I don't know. It doesn't matter. But we know when he was 30, even his own brothers were not believing in him. But now, what does Jude say? How does he open his letter? Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. Do you see a transformation? That's not a little transformation. That is life from the dead. And it wasn't just Jude. You want to know how James opens his letters? James, a slave of Jesus Christ. These two brothers, locked in arms, confessing that they are slaves to their older brother, who in the Gospel of John, at the age of 30, who they did not believe in. This is hope for us parents who see our children doubting Jesus. By God's grace, not our own power, but by His grace, our own children, who we see doubting Jesus can become slaves of God and the Lord Jesus Christ by his power and his will. You can see that as a hope for your grandchildren. You can see that as a hope for your parents, your family members, your friends. If you can live in a household with the Messiah, for 30 years and doubt him and not believe in him and yet be transformed into a slave? If you can be like the Apostle Paul and persecute Christians to the point of death and then become a slave, you too can become a slave where there is true freedom by faith in this Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man.
That is encouragement to parents. And now we turn to encouragement to children. Look with me at the second part of verse 1. To those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Here Jude formally discloses who he is writing to. Not a particular congregation. This is why it's called a general epistle. But he does give us something about who he's writing to. It is those who are the called, the beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. What's ironic is that this group which Jude addresses isn't those who have heard a general call to believe and repent. The general call goes out to all. It's general. Believe in Jesus and repent of your sins is a call that falls on many deaf ears that sadly will remain deaf ears. See Acts 17. But rather, those who have received an effectual call of saving grace, those are the ones who Jude is writing to. These are they that follow the Lamb. These are they that are beloved in God the Father. These are the called to salvation. There are three linguistic observations I want to make in this triplet that Jude gives us. And he's very fond of using triplets, which if you study the book of Jude, you will see that he's very fond of using triplets. He uses three here. Called, beloved, and kept. Or if you're using the King James, it may say called, sanctified, and preserved. One theologian I profit much from is the Baptist standard bearer, John Gill. And John Gill, I think, gives us some good information concerning these three uh, triplets, concerning who Jude is writing to. And he says this about the called. Called, not merely externally by the ministry of the word, that's the general call, but internally by the spirit and grace of God, so that this is to be understood of a special and effectual call, whereby souls are called out of darkness into light, and from bondage to liberty, and from a dependence on themselves to the grace and righteousness of Christ. We said that you can become a slave of Christ, and if the question is, well, how how does that happen? How do I become a slave of Christ? It is through this effectual call by the words that are going from this pulpit this morning, from the word of God this morning, in our prayers, and our songs, attended by faith, you then become the called effectually by the Holy Spirit. He is the only one who is able to take out that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You can't do it. Your parents can't do it. Your grandparents can't do it. Your friends can't do it. The Holy Spirit is the one who can do it and the one who must do it. And if you are effectually called by the Holy Spirit, by this work of regeneration, then you are beloved. That's the second descriptor he gives us. If you're called and you're beloved in God the Father, or as the King James says, sanctified. I believe this points to, as John Gill will again say, 
not to be understood of just a familial love, of a love of affection, divine affection, but rather election. This beloved signifies election, which is peculiar to God the Father, says John Gill. But he goes on to say, you're not only called and beloved, but then you are kept, you are preserved. Those who are sanctified or set apart by God the Father in election are in Christ. They are chosen in him. They have a place in his heart and they are put into his hands and are in him and united to him as members to a head and were represented by him in the covenant of grace. This is encouragement to children. Why? We as children of God know that from start to finish, all the glory goes to God. We as believers were as damned as the rest at one time, being children of wrath before becoming children of God. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 3, Truly, all of us also lived among them at one time, did we not? Gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now this can be confusing for a child, especially a young child who has godly parents. I've heard of children asking their parents, Papa, Mama, or Daddy, Mama, why don't you ever sin? May sound like a Blessing to have your child say that because, again, they're witnessing the work of the Spirit in you. But what would your response be to your child? Oh, honey, Papa sins. Mama sins. And this is important because sometimes children can see their parents, godly parents, as having always been in the faith. Not so, says the Apostle Paul, and we all know intimately better. Our children need to know that as well. That we at one time gratified the cravings of our flesh and followed the desires and our own thoughts of our flesh. We were like the rest at one point in time who by nature deserved wrath. Sad to say, but true. But God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. I can't believe I lived in a house for 30 years with Jesus. I didn't believe in Him at the beginning of His ministry. And now I'm a slave to my brother. Praise be to God. That is the encouragement for children. And that is the encouragement for parents. And then Jude ends with this. Verse 2. 
Mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Here, Jude places a blessing on those whom he is writing to. Those who are the called, the beloved, the kept. Kept for what? Kept for the return of Christ, by the way. I recall the last time I was here, I talked about how you are a love gift to the Son from the Father. All those whom the Father has given me, I will raise them up on the last day. If you are in Christ, you are being kept and preserved for Christ as a gift to be given to him when he returns in the flesh. Sorry, I forgot to add that in point two. Let's move back to to my last point here. Jude is placing a blessing. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. It's a triplet, just like the address. He is writing to those who are the called, beloved, and kept. And now we praise that they would have mercy, peace, and abounding love to their account. We will see as we continue, or if you continue your study in Jude, you will see that he's fond of using these triplets as a rhetorical device. But look what he is asking the Lord for on behalf of you. Mercy, peace, and love. I think John Gill gets it right again when he says, the multiplication of it intends an enlarged view and fresh application of it, which they, which us brothers and sisters, sometimes, may I say always, stand in need of. When we are under temptation and affliction, when we need sympathy and compassion, and when they fall into sin, when we fall into sin, we stand in need of the fresh discoveries and application of the pardoning mercies of Christ. Do you need mercy and peace and love multiplied to you? Do you need mercy and peace and love multiplied to you? This multiplication is not novel to Jude. We see this wave upon wave of grace flowing from Christ to his people elsewhere. In John chapter 1, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Of his fullness we have received, all of us, grace upon grace. When I preached this message to Covenant Baptist Church, it was the day after I got back from a family trip to the beach with my family. I have six kids. My youngest will be two. And the first, this is the second time she's been to the beach. The first time, she would not go out of the stroller. Sand was too much. Water was too much. Uh, This time, she got out of her stroller, out of the loving arms of her mother, put her on the shore, and she slowly started getting close to the water. Eventually, the water hit her little feet. And as the water was hitting her feet, she kept saying in her little voice, Again! Again, as the waves came in and out, again. 
What a picture of the grace of God that comes to us as brothers and sisters in Christ. No, as slaves of Christ. What a picture of the grace and the mercy and the love and the compassion that we receive by the Spirit who is our helper as a gift from God the Father because we are kept for Christ Jesus. In conclusion, I believe this is seen in a prayer in the Valley of Vision, and I want to read it in closing. If you want to find this later, it's under the title, Privileges. This is the privilege, brothers and sisters, that you have as being a slave of Christ and the prayer that we pray in dependence upon him and in the confident expectation that he will continue to give us grace upon grace. O Lord God, teach me to know that grace precedes, accompanies, and follows my salvation that it sustains and redeemed souls, that no one link of its chain can ever break. From Calvary's cross, wave upon wave of grace reaches me, deals with my sin, washes me clean, renews my heart, strengthens my will, draws out my affection, kindles a flame in my soul rules throughout my inner man, consecrates my every thought, word, and work, teaches me thy immeasurable love. How great are my privileges in Christ Jesus. This is encouragement to parents and children. This is encouragement to all who are slaves of Jesus Christ, like Jude. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you have effectually called us here who believe this morning as slaves to your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom there is true freedom. Lord, I pray that this word that has gone forth in the general call will become an effectual call as attended by your Spirit to those here who have yet to become slaves to your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the truth you've given us this morning. Thank you for moving the brother of our Lord to pronounce a blessing upon us through the Spirit of mercy and peace and love, for we need it this morning. We needed to be reminded of the wave upon wave of grace that reaches us wherever we are every single moment of every single day. And thank you for showing this immeasurable love illustrated in the empty tomb of our Lord Jesus Christ as we meet together to worship him on this day, this Lord's day of his rising from the dead. We thank you for all of this and more in his precious name. And we all say, Amen. Amen.